Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking to Michael McBride, who is a prolific creator on TikTok and other platforms. He has a crazy amount of followers and creates educational videos on TikTok around history and many other topics. However, most of all, excited to talk to him about his path, his recent leap to self-employment, and what drives him to create all the things he creates. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm super stoked to be on. Um, Yeah, I'm really, really happy to be here. So give people a sense of uh, who we're talking to. Um, you were a former strategy consultant. We share that in common. You're, in the last year and a half, your life has kind of accidentally gone in a really interesting direction. What happened and where are we? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm definitely a bit of a kind of professional dilettante and I've done all kinds of crazy different things over my life. But yeah, most recently I was working as a, um, a consultant specializing in data analytics. And then I started this little thing called Idea Soup, where I just started making these little short form videos on, uh, on history and science and random stuff I was interested in. And that has just exploded in the last, you know, year and a half. And now I've got half a million followers on TikTok. Um, I'm a full-time content creator and that's just what I do. And so I kind of fell into it super accidentally. Uh, I started writing on medium originally just because I was in the corporate world, was feeling very kind of uncreative, needed an outlet, and I just want to keep my thinking sharp more than anything else. So I started writing on Medium, um, did that for you know almost two years, uh, started having some success on there. But I found that kind of a lot of my friends didn't, a lot of, a lot of my friends just don't read, right? You know, like, like, like I, I consider myself a pretty intellectual guy, but I've got a super diverse and varied friend group. And a lot of them are like, hey, these articles seem interesting, but like, I'm not going to sit there and read a nine minute long article. I'm just not going to. Um, and so, yes, that's when I kind of, uh, said I want to do the same thing, but in video form. Uh, and I really went all in on short form from day one. I, I, you know, my, still my YouTube really, really is hardly anything at all. Uh, I started on Instagram, didn't get anywhere for a year, but I really believed that this like 
short form kind of bite-sized entertainment would uh, do well. And then I got on TikTok and it just hit with people. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, I went back to your first video on Instagram and you said, I feel pretty darn ridiculous talking to my phone. Um, and these are not going to be good videos, but hang in there. And I love that sentiment because that is really the right approach these days. Still, surprisingly, many young people want permission to do things or they think they need to be perfect at something before they do it. Um, what, where does that drive or impulse come from? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that, I think it's really hard. And even for me, it was challenging at first. I think that one of the most challenging things for content creators that no one ever talks about is, um, how ridiculous you feel taking it seriously at first. So right now, you know, I do a lot of my stuff talking to my phone. I'll do a lot in public while I'm traveling. Right. So I'll be traveling and at some, you know, historical landmark and I'll, you know, Mount Rushmore or whatever, and I'll pull out my phone and I'll start talking to myself. And I, it, yeah, it still feels real ridiculous today, but at least there's this like, oh, he's a creator. He's, he's got to do what he's got to do, right? He's got half a million followers. Of course he's doing that, you know? But when you're starting out and you have 10 followers, um, you kind of have to take it just as seriously and pour just as much of yourself into it if you want to succeed. So for me now to go and, I don't know, buy a nice camera or this or that seems totally normal, but at first, the people around you will be like, that's so cringy. Like, why, why are you trying so hard? Um, and so putting yourself in that place where you are vulnerable, really going all in on anything is a challenging place to be. And I think it's really, really tough for content creators that are just starting out. And so I think because of that, a lot of people half-ass it at first. Oh, I'm not, I'm not serious about this. It's just a little side thing. Oh, I'm, I, don't, I don't care about this because they want to avoid that, that vulnerability that comes with going all in. Um, and yeah, maybe I was able to look ridiculous. I have a little bit of background in theater when I was a kid. So maybe, maybe, maybe some of that helped me out. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's just this like awful growing pain that you really have to get through, um, that, that, uh, I think every, every content creator goes through. And I certainly did. Yeah. I think the switch for me was actually making, like, I went from writing online to sitting at a cafe, meeting somebody that resonated with what I wrote that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And before that, it was kind of I put these things out there publishing on LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn was the platform in 2014, 2015. Um, and I felt still such... is. I think I think people people sleep on LinkedIn, by the way. But I think I think it's still a tremendous amount of potential. I just felt such shame putting things out there. But there was still that right. voice that's like, I need to I want to say these things. I feel like this is a different way of looking at things. Um, was that a similar drive for you? And, and, and shame is the right word there. Um, people, people never talk about creation is the most vulnerable act on the entire planet. You're putting yourself into the world and saying, please judge me. Uh, and yeah, and I think you're totally right. I think that, you know, early on, don't focus on numbers, focus on how much you're impacting each individual person. And then, and then I also think like, you know, you know, my, my advice for, for small people starting out is contextualize it historically. If you have a, a thousand followers, the ability to talk to a thousand people, the ability for the average person to reach a thousand people is unprecedented in history, right? Like, you know, 200 years ago, that would have been almost completely impossible. You'd have had to like own a newspaper, right? To reach a thousand people. And now you can press a button and do it. So if you have an audience of a thousand people, that's amazing, right? Even a hundred is amazing. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I felt that. And yeah, you do need to just have this unrelenting drive of like, I have something to say. I have to keep saying it. And I want to keep getting better um, because the, I'm sure the drop off after, you know, 
three months of creating is huge, right? <laughs> Everyone goes in all, all full of piss and vinegar, um, but, you know, drops off pretty quickly. Yeah. So what keeps you going? I I know you've kind of tapped into a monetary angle, but you don't, and some people get stuck, right? Because the algorithm might send them in a direction where they're creating stuff they actually despise. Like a lot of early Instagrammers I've met are in this state in which uh, the algorithm has kind of steered them in a very weird direction, um, basically mm-hmm. showing their skin instead of their what they want to be showing. And it can be pretty terrible on the other side of that for those people. Um, how are you conscious of those traps um, as you've kind of scaled and oriented towards this? Yeah. So um, what keeps me going? Um, a unrelenting and bottomless need for attention. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, what, what keeps me going is just like, I just feel like I have something to say and I want to be listened to and I enjoy, uh, I enjoy making content. Um, I think that with regards to getting into a a trap, um, well, what's that, what's that psychological thing? I think it's called a Skinner box, uh, where they would, you know, put pigeons in a box and these very simple systems of reward and punishment based on behavior. Right. And it's like, that is, you know, social media is very much a classical conditioning framework where feedback is so visceral and so real. It is post performance, post performance, post performance. There's no ambiguity. If you're a journalist, right. 30 years ago, um, you don't have that. Like, like you write an article, you don't know how many people read it. You don't know what they thought about it. You don't know how many of them liked it before, you know, what, how many of them dropped off halfway through. Um, and so your feedback cycles were long and much more qualitative. Um, and so with it being so, so short and dynamic like that, uh, I think that, it, you know, you, you said the algorithm pushes them in a certain way, but I think the algorithm shows people what they want to see. It's most likely more so that they've trained their audiences, trains the wrong word. Their audiences have become conditioned to expect a certain thing out of them. Uh, and the fact is you, you do get caught into a cycle where you're giving the audience more of what they want. And, and I, I heard someone say once, like, you know, you remember that your social media profile is it's not Netflix, it's a TV show. So if I click on the office and parks and rec comes up, I'm going to be pissed off. Right. And so, so to some degree, it's like people come to you for a type of content and you want to keep giving that to them. Um, on the other hand, that is a trap, both because you have to keep scratching your own itch and you will very quickly go crazy just making content that is consumable people like. And also because I've seen a lot of content creators, I've seen a lot of early TikTokers death spiral <laughs> because, you know, they, they have, you know, X number of million of follow, X number of million followers, but just no engagement anymore. Because essentially, they they kept doing the same thing. The audience liked it. They gave them more of it. They gave them more of it. They gave them more of it. And as they were doing that, the context around them shifted. The, the, the competitive environment shifted. People got bored of it, whatever. And by the time they realized that their one trick was no longer working, it was too late. So I think it's, it's always a balance between give people more of what they want and innovate and give them new things. Like, like any business is like that, right? You have to balance the kind of Microsoft. I want to click on Outlook and get Outlook. Versus the Apple, you know, let's turn a, a MP3 player into a phone. <laughs> what are your, um, like Tyler Cowen calls it, the production function? What what makes you uh, different? Is I can see a uh, some background from the strategy consulting, just like synthesizing ideas and knowing how to get to the what matters. Like I think that is like one of the best skills you can learn in consulting, and why I. Um, think it's so valuable in today's world. 
Um, but also, I think there, there's probably some other secret weapon around your curiosity. Like, how, how do you think about your skill stack? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mean, Idea Soup is mainly history, then a little bit of science and psychology, too. Um, and I'm not a historian. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist, right? I don't know the most about these topics. There are people out there that know so much more than me. So if I had to say, like, why do people watch me? Uh, I think I think it, it's 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 two pieces. I think the first piece is, um, you know, I think I think one of my my real skills is taking something that is, you know, uh, complex and big and large and boiling it down in terms that make it very understandable and digestible and contextual. Right? That's super challenging, especially when I'm doing one minute history videos on TikTok or whatever, because I have to cut out so much. And I'm always, you know, people attack me in the comments, you left out this and you, you oversimplified this. And it's so tough because these decisions are like, you know, it's like choosing children. Right. <laughs> um, but, but fundamentally it's like, I'd rather give people this, this, this core that they can take away and they can always go learn more complex later. And the second piece is like, um, is like, uh, I think that my, I had this like, I had this like moment in, um, in, uh, when I was in London, right. I used to live in London I lived in London for three years. And I was just like walking down the street late night, had a few too many beers or whatever. Right. And I was walking home and it was dark. I was walking across the bridge where you see St. Paul's cathedral at the end of it. And I'm seeing like London, this, you know, ancient, ancient city, you know, older than, England itself. Right. And I'm, I see St. Paul's and like, I, I just like, I, I start crying. Right. Wow, and yeah. I'm just so moved by like all the history, the majesty, the beautiful architecture. And I, I realized like, Oh, this is, this is what makes me good at, at idea soup is I just love this stuff so much. And I, I find history so crazy and weird and fascinating that um, I think that that's, contagious. And I guess like if I had a mission, it's not necessarily to educate people. It's just to make them more interested is to make them go like, wait, history is wait. How did Romans wipe their asses? That's crazy. Right? Like, like, like to me, it's like, it's not, it's not just like dates and numbers and this and that. It's all the like, like the the history is so crazy and wild. Um, You care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, I'm just such a crazy nerd. I think caring is, well, I think caring is so underrated in today's world. It's it's almost become uh, a like very normal thing to be like ah whatever, right? This oh, totally. Deep, totally. This deep nihilistic strand, and I think what creating and writing has enabled me to it basically nudges you into is like I have to care about things, yeah. and I have to treat things with a certain. Um, I don't even know what the word is, but just like gentleness of like, okay, I'm going to try to not fuck things up and try to add something useful in like a very positive and earnest way, which I definitely get that vibe from yours as well. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, kind of kind of go back to what I said before earlier, like caring is also something that is very vulnerable. The moment you care, you're vulnerable. You're you're attached to a topic or an idea or uh, or or a pursuit, and yeah, I think our world discourages that. I think it's so easy for folks to actively say, "I don't care," because if if you don't care, you can't be argued with, you can't be attacked, you can't be criticized. No, I don't care. I don't care. So yeah, I think I think you know, people are attracted to folks that care, right? The 
the age of the try hard is is ending i hope or the sorry the, the age of you know words like try hard right like what a wild word trying hard is amazing <laughs> like try hard should be a compliment like you are trying so hard well I, I think the root of that though is that people are trying hard towards things they see as pointless right i think if we yeah. think of trying hard in a large organization we think of somebody that's kind of trying to like please others play politics and like get ahead yeah totally um totally. and it's not attached to anything but that's more of a symptom of kind of specialization and work um yeah i i always bring it back i always bring it back no no it. no I but think, um, i think you're totally right there i think you're totally right um we cannot leave the listeners hanging people want to know how romans wiped their asses oh so okay so they <laughs> they use these things that were these like um i like i mean in a lot of ways the romans are very clean they had bathhouses this that uh, but they would wipe their ass with these kind of like long sticks that had like loofah brushes at the end. They used a type of natural sponge and they would sit in these big buckets of vinegar uh, in like mutual bathrooms and you would kind of like share the brush or pass it around. But they did put it in a bucket of vinegar, which yeah. like considering germ theory wouldn't be invented for another 2000 years. Like not bad. All right. Not bad. <laughs> I'll give it to you. So, Yeah. I love that. Yeah. If if you want more content like that, check out Idea Soup on TikTok and <laughs> Instagram. You have a lot of great stuff. Like I, I went down a rabbit hole before you were talking about um, this idea of traditional Christmas and how uh, traditional Christmas was just a drunken brawl where rich people were basically forced to open up their homes and f like get uh, the public drunk and feed them. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, they banned Christmas like Protestants. Uh, I think England banned Christmas for like 100 years, something like that. Like, so you want to talk about a war on Christmas? Yeah, they oh, they fully banned it because it was so rowdy and so over the top. And, you know, kind of what we associate with Halloween today used to look a lot more like Christmas, actually. I want I wanted to dig more into the the caring and the earnestness because I think it's something I've seen emerge a little in the past couple of years and I'd be interested to get your take on like if you see that emerging um but also just like your gen I are you you're a millennial right yeah but I I think you're like a young you're at the like yeah. younger end right like I'm probably like the older millennial that reminisces about the 90s you're probably a little more reminiscent about the 2000s. Um, so we'll get to that. But you wrote, you wrote this really powerful article that I'm going to link up. And I really encourage people to read it because um, it not only has a provocative headline, but I think you deliver on it in terms of making people think about things. Uh, you talk about this trend of people just casually saying like they want their life to be over. I think you titled it, All My Friends Want to Kill Themselves. Um, and... I, I think it's resonated with other things I've seen, too. Um, there's like a mental health crisis. There's just a broader willingness to talk about trauma and um, think about victimhood. And um, there's just a lot written about this and it's disturbing. Like, what's going on there? And like, do you see any positivity emerging out of that? Or is this still just something that's not being paid attention to? Yeah, man, that's a that's a, a big question. Um it's it's funny. It's like my my writing is so radically different from my uh, like my TikTok content, which is probably a you know big problem for my brand. But uh, my writing is like super serious and focuses on mental health and culture and politics and all that. Uh, and so yeah, the article "Why Do All My Friends Want to Kill Themselves" uh, was basically just exploring this 
suicidal ideation being kind of a like normal form of communication that kind of like the depression meme uh, in, in our culture, particularly with millennials and this, this specific strain of nihilism that is lighthearted, but does have a, a reality to it. There, there is a very real uh, like, like trend of suicidal ideation. Depression memes resonate with people for a reason. And I don't think they're they're bad. I don't think we need to stop talking like that. I think that actually joking about it and making light of it uh, does a lot of good and can be very cathartic. And you know, depression memes are, are awesome in a certain sense, um, but it's complex. And I think that there is a strain of misery and nihilism that is so real today, especially with younger people. Um, you know, millennials for sure, and Gen Z. It is amplified 10x um you know i'm on tiktok obviously so i'm spending a lot of time with you know you know gen z audience and stuff um i do think there is a misery and a desperation that is very very real and i think that uh it is it's profound and widespread. I talk about like young people and nihilism and it's really easy to go like it's social media and they're just watching hot girls in bikinis and feeling bad about themselves. But I think it's so much more complex and nuanced than that. I think that it, it that, that is spreading very, very, very rapidly to the boomer generation. I think there's an element of anger and misery and, and I would even say nihilism that is coming to the boomer generation very, very quickly that you are seeing with QAnon with a lot of these conspiracy theory uh, kind of things. It, it fills a very similar void. Um, that, that is just this anger, this misery. And I think, I think it's, um, I, I, I think the, we're absolutely in a crisis of mental health. There's no question. But I think more importantly, we are in a, a, a moment where change is happening so quickly and accelerating so fast that it just breathes this toxicity that I think uh, amplifies through society on so many different levels. Um, you know, that starts economically, workplace, et cetera. It, it's, that's a big statement and a big topic that we can break down more um, because I am not a Luddite. I don't think it's just technology makes people sad and breathes mental illness at all. I think it's much more complex than that. I mean, it's something I've explored pretty deeply while looking at work. I, th I think we're in some sort of meaning crisis, and I see it play out in a number of ways. You see people doubling down on work to try and get meaning from work, and I think that is probably a mistake for a number of reasons. Um, the labor market has changed such that, like, most, even married couples, if both partners are working, people are not engaged in the community. Um, so even if you do move to like a town where there's theoretically a community, it's just a little more empty and absent. Um, and then these myths about uh, like put work hard, right? Work hard, put your head down, put in your time, you'll be taken care of. Um, kind of hard to do when you have debt, housing prices are expensive, healthcare is growing exponentially every year. And I talk to young people and I noticed that Gen Z is almost like opting out before they even go into it. Like, it, totally. and it, it's shifting. Like I have a lot of friends my age who have opted out after like 10 years in the corporate world. Then I have friends who are your age who opted out after two or three years. Now I'm meeting Gen Z people that are like, fuck this system. 
I'm not even going to follow that. And I think, I think there is some issues with that, but they're also seeing things a lot more clearly because of social media, right? I, I was a bit blind to how organizations in the real world worked. Um, so there's that disconnect because reality is not going to shift very quickly. Um, but our perceptions of it can get detached or disconnected from that. And it's just an incredibly hard time to be carving your own path and thinking about meaning and connectivity and community all while just trying to get started in the world. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that there's some, uh, I think that by and large, the story of the last 20 years, 30 really has really been a story of destabilization in a lot of ways. Um, in the sense that we've gone from these very stagnant, stable institutions, right? Of, you know, big corporations, you work there forever, nothing changes, just completely ossified to global world distributed software eats the world. Uh, and that has provided a tremendous amount of opportunity and created right. this creator class. I mean, I think 70% of elementary school kids say they want to be a YouTuber now. <laughs> that's like, that's that blue pass astronaut. But I think with that, with that, like, Matt, just the rate of change is just accelerating and accelerating, accelerating. Uh, you know, globalization has caused, you know, massive wealth inequality. I think that people, uh, the, the kind of the, the white picket fence material, go get a job at a company and work there for 40 years. I think Gen Z is opting out, but I think they also just realized that it doesn't quite exist anymore. Yeah. And how, how does that show up? I mean, you're interacting with a lot of these young people um, through comments and stuff, through your videos. Um, how does that show up? Like, what do you, what do you hear from people? Who are the people that, what are the things that surprise you? Um, I think that, I think Gen Z has a lot more optimism than people realize. I think that, um, there is this like very much a, um, it comes out in weird ways, right? Like there's obviously this big kind of like, uh, revolutionary politics kind of attitude among Gen Z of eat the rich and we need socialism and this and that. Um, and, and not to get, you know, political, you know, obviously there's, you know, so, you know, some of those, some of those ideas have elements of merit, but, um, I, I think that, that there is faith that we can build a better future, even if that faith is a bit fantastical at times, uh, on certain elements. I think that there is a, a big sense of community and community building. And even within a lot of, um, you know, you know, mental illness is a great example where, uh, as there has been this absolute epidemic of mental illness, but there are also now so many more resources, so many more communities built around depression, ADHD, whatever. They all have their little communities of creators and, and people involved in that. Um, so I think it, it manifests, um, you, you know, in certain ways that are optimistic and positive. I love this vibe from you. That's just like, you seem like you have a deep concern for your fellow human. And like, how, how are you channeling that or thinking about channeling that just in like creating a video? Cause like you literally have the chance to reach millions, right? With like some videos can reach millions of people. Um, how do you think about both that responsibility and like what you're orienting towards? Yeah. So, um, you know, so, so I think, uh, in my mind, the way that like, I try to, I guess, make the world a better place. If that, I wouldn't call myself an activist. I don't think I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a huge net benefit for the world, but I, if, if I had a thesis, it's that, um, you know, education really does work and education really does matter. 
And I think one of the crises we have today is a crisis of education where we are raised on a early 20th century education system. <laughs> if that, right, we are raised on a very industrial age education system, one size fits all, that is so wildly irrelevant for the average person these days that I think that kids are coming out of high school wildly undereducated on what they need to actually be educated on um, and oftentimes turned off from learning because they've spent all their time, you know, doing trigonometry and this and that, um, learning the wrong things. And so in my mind, it's like my favorite comment I ever get is I hate history. I hate a history class, but now because of you, I'm getting interested in it. And I'm That's so reading cool, this yeah. book or this or that. That's my favorite comment in the world. I get it all the time where you think these folks were, were taught wrong. They were given an incorrect introduction to it. And it caused people to kind of reject whole fields. And I think that one of the biggest challenges we have today is just this rejection of nuance. Uh, just, just culturally, we just cannot handle nuance in any real way. And history is the most incredible field for wrestling with nuance. It's, it's the most incredible field for wrestling with nuance. And I think that for folks to, uh, to, you know, you know, paint, history is not just a, a jumping off point for politics or to direct our anger. Like, yes, we look back at the past and horrible things happen and good things happen too. And you put all that together and you get this crazy, bizarre, disgusting, beautiful mess of humanity. And that is now what we learn from because that's who we are. We're the same primates. We have the right. same brains. Our DNA has not materially changed in 500 years as our world has radically, radically shifted. And so we can learn a tremendous amount from learn. But I think education is changing really quickly, right? I think that... Um, I think that when we talk about building new institutions, uh, I do think that the average kid today is served way better by the internet than by his classroom, almost certainly across. The yeah. Board, right? Every, every college student I talk to, I always ask them, how do you actually learn things? They say, well, I, I go to class. Sometimes I just skip class and then I go to YouTube and figure out how to actually do the thing or, yeah, Khan, 100%. or Khan Academy. Um, yeah. Do you see yourself playing a role in the future of education? I think so. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I mean, fundamentally, you know, I'm an entertainer, but I think first and foremost, I am an educator. And I think that uh, there's this quote, I'm sure I'm going to miss the quote exactly, but it's like, there's two ways to build a boat. One is to, uh, you know, gather men together and get wood and planks and this and that and, you know, create plants to the boat. And the other is to find a crowd and teach them to long for the sea. Right. And it's like, it's like, I, I kind of view my role as the latter, where if you, if you spark that curiosity in people and that passion from an early age, that's really tough to snuff out, right? Um, I think that a lot of kids get set on a path very, very early on by age 15 based on are they curious self-learners or do they hate school and they want to stop learning? And, and the earlier you can intervene, the better, but I also think it's never too late. I think, you know, like, you know, don't, you know, I think sometimes I don't, I love the classics. I love reading classics, but like maybe don't give kids the Scarlet Pimpernel and have them hate reading, give them some awesome book. That's, you know, new, but really well-written and they love it. And, you know, you know, you start with, uh, uh, what's the, um, uh, the, uh, the movie with the, the uh, kids killing each other. I'm blanking out. I'm not mocking, uh, Hunger Games. You start with Hunger Games, right? Yeah. That's go read the Hunger story. Games, right? 
okay, yeah, go read the Hunger Games. And then you develop a thirst for reading and that habit then carries you forward in life. So Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I actually developed uh, this at like 21, like very, very late. I read the book Freakonomics and then I literally was like oh, freaking cool. out. I'm like, oh my God, they flipped everything I knew about these four topics. Like, where can I find more <laughs> more books about this? I think I read like five Malcolm Gladwell books within the next <laughs> few weeks, but that just like opened my world and like, it's really just been a thirst for curiosity since. Yeah, no, no, it really is. It really is. And a lot of times it is kind of a poison pill that gets it in like yeah. Freakonomics is ostensibly edutainment, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's analytical, right? And there's, there's a lot of merit to it and the work that it was really interesting, but fundamentally they understood that a huge component of teaching is entertaining and Freakonomics right. was fascinating and, 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 and goofy and, 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 and off the walls. And that like, that works, right? That, that is the poison pill that leads folks onto more complex things, I think. Definitely. So I'd love to close a little bit about your path and how this experience is for you. Uh, you've recently left full-time employment um, to pursue this. And I'm wondering, one, like, do you value the corporate experience you had? Do you wish you had left earlier? Um, how do you think about that? And then we'll dive into how you're kind of like, what is the what does it feel like to be an independent self-employed person out there right now. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm happy to spend a little time on this. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't have a I don't have a hard stop or anything. Um, so yeah, I worked in the corporate world. Uh, I was in analytics consulting for five years, doing data analytics and data science. Um, and I found it tremendously valuable. And I, I don't wish I had left earlier. Uh, I think I, I think I was there for just the right amount of time. Uh, like four or five years felt perfect where I yeah. really really got a good, good feel for the corporate world. And especially because it was in consulting. So I was able to jump around between several companies, but then more importantly, see that like 3000 mile view that I think has given me such an insight into corporate culture and like, therefore, you know, like middle-class American culture, right? Like middle and upper-class American culture. It's like, it is a direct pipe, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and it was so fascinating to me. Uh, I definitely left disillusioned is the wrong word and cynical is, is not even quite the right word either, but like corporations are so the, the biggest thing that I think, I think every consultant realized this is like going in, you start a little bit idealistic and uh, you know, Oh, I want to do big things. And even before yeah. consulting, I, I, I was like, a, yeah, I was, I was like a documentary filmmaker before the works. I, I had a film in South by Southwest before I ever had a corporate job in consulting. So I had a bit of a creative background, but, yeah. um, you know, I realized I was like, I call it the 80, 20 rule, which is 80% of people at any company would burn their company to the ground for a 20% pay raise. <laughs> it's so <laughs> like, like, like mission statements, values, whatever. All that stuff's bullshit. It's out the, the 80, window. 20 right? rule. You know? Oh my God. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> going to borrow this and give you the hat tip. And, and, and it's just like, like the, I think the biggest surprise every consultant experiences is like, oh, politics is not a part of like corporate culture. It's everything. It's, it's, it's everything. the part. Yeah. Power and politics. It's the part. Yeah. It. And, and if, if they get work mm. done and succeed as an organization, it's usually by accident, mm. <laughs> right? Like as a byproduct of all this politics happening. Um, and so I think understanding that and seeing how 
you know, work is not rewarded in most organizations. The appearance of work is, right? Like signaling mechanisms on who's going to be a success in the future, who this. That's why folks fail upwards and this and that, you know, and our our mechanisms for understanding performance are terrible. Our mechanisms for understanding who's going to do well in the future are terrible. Um, did you ever forget that you were a creator? Like, did, did you ever, did you own like I'm this corporate person and then get in the mode of like, I'm going to build out this long consulting career? Yeah, there was there was definitely a so I started off super creative, right? I was a uh, I was a, like a, I came into uh, school went to USC in, in California, came in as a theater major, right? Then I switched communication and then I switched to business. I just like fully sold out, uh, you know, like, um, uh, like some crazy stuff happened in college. Like my, um, my ex-girlfriend had cancer. And so I was like, spent a year with her and her family didn't have a ton of money. And, and, and I didn't have any money at the time. So all of a sudden I was like, okay, money's the most important thing in the world. Like got to Got to get money. Got to switch to business. Go, yeah. go accomplish something. Uh, and I loved studying business, right? I really did. Uh, my ex-girlfriend lived, by the way. She's doing great now. Uh, yeah, I, I loved studying business, right? Uh, and so I, then I got into the entertainment industry for a year or two, pivoted back, got into consulting, right? Moved to India. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a period, maybe a year or two in, where I was like, you know what? Like, I'm happy. I'm making good money. I'm watching Netflix every night. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is it, right? Maybe I was never meant to be a creator. That's, you know, endless work for just dissatisfaction. Here I am, got a decent salary. You know, I'm just going to watch Netflix and enjoy my, uh, you know, Uber Eats. I don't think Uber Eats was even around there. You know, enjoy, enjoy my, my, you know, my dinner from down the street. Uh, but, but then what? Yeah, then I just like, I don't know. There's just hunger inside of me, I guess. Yeah. Um, there's just something in me that just wanted more and I started writing and that's where it started. And I was like very convinced, like this will stay a hobby. This will stay a hobby. This will stay a hobby. Um, and I really, maybe that helped. Maybe it helped take the stakes off for me because when you say, I'm going to be a full-time content creator, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I think it's so much pressure. Some people never get off the ground by keeping the, the stakes low at first. I could continually create even if it was crap. So I'd put out a lot of crap and then eventually it got good. Um, and then, yeah. And then I, and then I just kind of started to see that the world was changing, that social media afforded a lot of opportunities that weren't there before. Um, I had an article go viral, made some money from that. And I was like, Oh wait, I can get paid <laughs> my ideas. Wait, this is different. Um, so yeah, I definitely had a moment where it was like, I, I did not consider myself a creator anymore. I considered myself like, Oh, I used to be this artistic guy, but that's not me anymore. Now I'm just a corporate guy and I want to just rise to the top of this world for sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, mean, I, I think that's one of the dangers of the corporate world is that you become overly identified as a worker. And I think I was certainly in this until I went through a health crisis and then I kind of had this space. Interesting. And I didn't have this like latent um, creative endeavor that I'd kind of abandoned, but like writing kind of emerged into that gap and is like, I'm here. <laughs> the writing was like, we're not leaving. You're going to want to keep doing this. <laughs> and then it just kind of like slowly expanded. And it wasn't like, this is why I have such a hard time describing my leap is that there was no, there was just a deep sense of like knowing it was time. There was no like moment. There was no plan. It was a terrible plan. I like it was financially poorly executed, but um, 
it was just like time when the creative stuff took over. Was that similar for you or was the like explosion on TikTok just too much where it was like, well, this is like going to make me more than my full-time job now? No, no. I mean, so it's, uh, so I first, at first actually, do you ever miss it? Do you ever miss yeah. just fully your identity is the corporate job? Yeah. I was, I was, I was happy. I've always been a pretty happy person. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's a certain naivety of youth um, in which I was happy with kind of the like pleasure and fun. And to be honest, like the community oriented around young 20s corporate world is really fun. Um, I mm-hmm. think I started to struggle in my early 30s when a lot of that community drifted away. People didn't orient around fun and being in the city and always being around their friends. It was more around mm-hmm. like totally moved to the house starting my family and doing those things. So, so I felt a bit more lost at that age. Um, but I miss just showing up and being part of a team. Um, the thing I always remind myself though, is like, you can never sustain those teams very long. Like I was on great teams, probably five or six different times, but they never lasted longer than like six months. Um, people either move on or go do their, their thing. And I miss that. Like, some mentors who are just like you're in the the grind with for three months straight and working on a really hard project and they're really pushing you and making you uncomfortable, but also like caring about you as a person. I, I was lucky to have a number of those experiences. Um, that's really hard to replace as a solo creator. Um, like someone like me and you, we could say like, hey, let's try to find a way to collaborate. But like, I know it's just going to be freaking hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it probably maybe it will happen but it's just gonna be even if you did one thing it's gonna be hard to sustain that yeah i i i, I totally agree um i still miss the teamwork for sure um and I, I almost liken it to people who have kind of like left the religion almost where yeah you had answers they may not have been the right answers but you had answers and it's really comforting having answers uh and once you leave that there, there are no answers. Um, you know, there was never a moment where I, uh, was like, Oh my God, I'm making so much money. I have to quit now. So actually I kind of took a leap of faith. So I quit my job, uh, in February, just before, just before the pandemic, perfect timing. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, when I quit my job, I had done like one brand deal. Maybe I had made very, very little money from social media. My writing had made, you know, um, you know, a couple thousand bucks or whatever, but like nothing crazy. Um, so I just, I saved my money. That's the one good thing about working in a corporate job. I tell that to a lot of creative people. If you can create a financial buffer for yourself, you can increase your risk tolerance tremendously. So I saved up like two years of like two years of expenses of like pretty, you know, you know, minimal expenses, not like, yeah. you know, big house or anything, but like two years of expenses. And I was like, I'm going to give myself two years, just pursue this dream all out. Um, and now I'm in a place where, you know, I pay my bills every month with, uh, the money I make from content creation. I have had a couple months that have been as good as my old job. Right. But it's not, it's not regular. Uh, and so, um, so no, it wasn't this, like, there's so much money in it. I now need to go pursue this. And I think folks who wait for that sometimes miss the ball. I think sometimes you do have to jump a little bit earlier than it feels like you should. Um, that being said, I believe in the side hustle tremendously. I've been reflecting lately how like in some ways I was actually more productive 
I, I produced a, more content when I was working full time because I felt so pressured. I was in a pressure cooker. I would walk to work. That structure and routine is underrated. So underrated. I would walk to work every day, and I had a fifteen minute walk to the tube station to take the you know the 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 tube to to my job. Right. I was like, oh, I don't have time to make TikToks, but I have to make TikToks. What am I going to do? So on that 15-minute walk, I would record my TikTok. On my 40-minute tube ride, I would edit my TikTok, sitting down crammed between like seven other people. And by the time I got to work, my TikTok for the day would be finished. And that, that was how like 80% of my early TikToks were made, just like clawing out that time out of the day when I was already super busy. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's that tension of kind of having this thing that matters to you. And it's almost like an F you to your job. It's like, I will do this. You can't take this totally. from me. Totally, totally. And now, like, I definitely, I've been thinking a lot lately that I want to rekindle that a little bit. Because it's so easy to be like, oh, you know what? I'll I'll take a little longer lunch. Oh, my girlfriend's watching Survivor. Okay, I'll go watch, like, a Survivor rerun. Like, like you know, and, and all of a sudden, a couple hours, okay, I should get back to work. You know, like, that that, that intensity, um you have to manufacture it artificially for yourself yeah. outside of those environments of intense accountability. And I really thrive in structure and accountability. So I keep trying to generate that for myself. Um, and some days I'm better than others, but it's absolutely a challenge of being a solo creator. Yeah. And what does success mean to you now? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I heard someone, um, I heard someone write the other day, maybe I actually said, maybe you retweeted or something. I don't know. I heard maybe. someone write that um, there's only, there's only three levels of wealth that matter. There is, uh, there is, oh God, what is it? Oh yeah. It was, it was number one, bills are covered, right? Yeah. Comfortable life. Right. Number two is when you walk into a restaurant, you don't need to look at the price tags on the menu. And number three is when you travel, you don't need to look at the price tags. <laughs> Those are the only three levels of wealth that matter. <laughs> huh. I was like, I was like, there's something to that. So <laughs> like, um, but all that being said, I think I mean, it's easy to say, but I know a lot of very wealthy people who live very poor lives yeah. because they are either very time poor, um, or risk poor, uh, and, and so to me, success is a combination of, for me personally, um, creating content people care about, right? And just being heard. Um, number two is, is, is definitely freedom. I really, really value freedom of location and geography. I've been to 36 countries now. I love traveling. I really value freedom of location um, and freedom of schedule. And I think that I'm, I've gone to the point in life where I do value that a little bit more than, than raw money. Yeah. While I would like to get to a point where I'm really, you know, not looking at the price tag for travel or, or that. Um, I also know people who are, you know, draw these prisons around themselves and they won't fly international unless it's first class. And so they wow. don't make, don't make it abroad this year or whatever. Right. <laughs> like I know a lot of people that because they need the best of everything, yeah, they can only actually do something fun once every three years or whatever, right? Um, so I think that the hedonic treadmill turns on very quickly. The transition for me has, it's actually surprised me because I, th I think I used to care. I, I made enough money where I didn't have to look at the price tags for restaurants yeah. um, in New York. Um, 
The surprising thing that happened is I realized that going to restaurants didn't add a ton to my yeah. life when I had less money because I couldn't go to them anymore. Um, so yeah, my, my second level is really that like time wealth. And when you have more time, you're willing to actually spend more time on inconvenience in a weird way. So you're will like, if you have time, you spending three hours to make a meal is no longer, um, something that's in tension with anything. Um, it's pretty beautiful. And I think the hardest thing I have is almost like leaving a religion is explaining that to other mm. people. Cause people constantly have questions like, don't you want a house? If you have kids, what about X? If you do this in the future, aren't you worried about X? And it's like, I know it's clear you're worried about those things, but I, they're not my starting mm. points. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really hard to, um, it's surprising. It's, I'm in a place that's very unexpected from where I started four years ago. And I really thought I used to care about things um, that it turns out are more flexible than I thought. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think that's really valid. I think that's really, really valid. Um, and, and yeah, and then also I guess some, some element of happiness, satisfaction, right? I think that's illusory, but there's, there's something to that too. I, I don't want to say that every digital nomad is happy because I do think that like, I, you know, I don't want that to be like the no, tone of this conversation. Cause I feel like I hear that everywhere and it's almost like cliche now. There's kind of four hour work week cult and it's not quite that simple. Um, I think, but, and I don't think the corporate world is like a hell hell either. I do think there's a lot of happy people no. who live corporate lives because there's an element of, you know, financial stability does increase happiness up to a point. Absolutely. Man, when I was in consulting, like I would just be in meetings with all these, you know, VPs and senior VPs and you know people that are at the, you know, C, you know, C-suite people that were at the top of their game, and like they are just so miserable, man. They're just so miserable. You see it in their (laughs) eyes, and you're just like, yeah, you know, and it just it feels like they're just chasing something and they don't even know why. I think that's what the digital nomads have is they've they kind of haven't gone far enough like they've realized that is not worth it right but they're merely escaping that i think where i've kind of landed i've kind of discovered i'm a little more traditional and normie than i expected basically because seeing myself in tension with a lot of these nomad types who tend to reject everything just out of default whereas like for me it's like okay, the, the things I, I want are actually the same things that a lot of people have accidentally through the default path. It just means I'm going to have to be more conscious about creating Interesting. How do I insert myself in a community where, where people are engaged and involved with each other? How do I create a stability such that I can attract others that want to invest in relationships and, and things like that? Whereas like, yeah, this uh, nomad culture, there's definitely a streak of, this like hedonistic nihilism, which is like, do whatever makes you happy. And if anyone makes you uncomfortable, leave them. Yeah. 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 And and there's, it's like, no. Yeah. And there's even an element of like, they're kind of hopping off one treadmill and getting on another one sometimes where it goes from, I need to have all the money in the world and get a house to, I got to travel to all these countries and tick this off. And I'm in Africa. Yes. I need to go to Africa now. And, And like, all of a sudden you're just substituting 
one thing that fills the void and another thing that fills the void. Um, and I've seen that a lot with, with digital nomad types. I think we're going to continue to see that uh, yeah. as you know, work really radically yeah. reshapes the next few years. I think the digital nomad path is radically underrated for somebody like my age in yeah. like early to mid thirties. Um, because it's actually way one, easier. Physically, you, it's actually way easier. I think. Well, fi- physically, you can't really party all the time. Yeah, yeah true. Uh, two, you like don't want to be. You want like a more like we're in an apartment. We're renting for a month. Yeah. Um, and this is like a stable home base for us, rather than like we don't want to be traveling every yeah. three days. Um, and it just puts you in tension with um, living in different places, and makes you really just think about all these deeper questions, which I think make my life better. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people in their mid thirties, um, have so much more in savings. I think, I think the, where I see digital nomads really go wrong is they go a little too early. They don't quite have a good enough income stream and they're really, really struggling, really pinching pennies, which don't get me wrong. It's its own adventure too. You know, I like drove around the country with no money. Like I've been a lot of places when I didn't have money. Um, (laughs) But I think a lot of people in their mid-30s with no kids can take a year off and travel and come back and have no impact on their career, no impact on their money, really, right? Like if they have, you know, if they're saving up to buy a house or something, a year of traveling is actually nothing compared to buying a house in Escondido or whatever, right? And so and so, um, I, I totally agree that's underrated. And yeah, and even going digital nomad because – a lot of people are more established careers, which means they can go remote more easily because they've been in the same place for 10 years. So I, I, I totally agree. I do think, you know, remote work is going to reshape our electorate pretty rapidly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, I'm very much in a state of not knowing. Um, there's definitely, it'd be easy for me to just be like, here's how things are going to happen. Here's, I've been writing about these things for years, but it's like, yeah, I'm just kind of like sitting and observing these things. It's clear something is afoot in terms of how people are working and living, but I'm not really sure what direction it's going to go in. It's really exciting to uh, watch and see what will emerge. And I hope people are more easily able to build life paths that give them meaning. And I think that's what excites me. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope so too, man. I hope so too. Um, I don't know though, you know, like if putting people in charge of making their own meaning is also a type of curse. Hmm. Like I, like I'm, I'm not sure if, if we move to this world where 80% of the population are gig workers and have their own companies, and there's this big middle class of creators um, that a lot of people theorize right now. I'm not sure if like the net happiness is going to be larger than when everyone just showed up at Kodak and <laughs> filled out paperwork. Like. <laughs> I totally agree. And I mean, I have a hypothesis around that. I call it the accidental meaning hypothesis, which was that basically the people that accidentally went to work at GE and Kodak and General Dynamics like got this accidental meaning because the systems were designed around it. Yeah, I I think that's real. And I think that sometimes when you ask people to make their own meaning, it leads for them, you know, seeking meaning in unhealthy places. Like I think how much of this is responsible for the rise of conspiracy theories, for example? To me, conspiracy theory is this perfect example. They exist in a meaning vacuum, right? Right. When, when there is a vacuum of meaning, everyone loves conspiracy theories because suddenly it gives order and meaning to the world very, right. very quickly. Yeah, it's um, and I mean, this is what I 
I don't think people should. I think people need to be more open-eyed that you probably have to put a little more effort in to designing your meaning than you did 30 years ago. And I think that's yeah. um, the thing I try to get to. But yeah, it's it's freaking hard. And like digital nomad life isn't the answer either because I mean, me and my wife, we have families from two different countries and trying to design around that is just, it's not a normal um, thing to solve. There's no good answers. <clears throat> totally, totally. Even just like, where do you get your mail? Because it's no problem. <laughs> Send it to my mom and then she takes pictures. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. But um, awesome. Well, this feels like a good spot to end. I, I, I think we covered some interesting stuff. I, I think through your lens of creating educational material, you have this very unique lens on how kind of social trends are shaping and some of the positive things you can do with it. So um, keep up the good work. I'm excited to follow your journey and see where it takes you and um yeah another person on the pathless path helping me make sense of my own <laughs> as well yeah thank you so much for having me man thanks for listening to reimagine work i'm having a ton of fun doing this podcast one friend even reached out and said it's like a really professional coffee chat conversation from business school. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'm going to put that one in the positive column for now. If you have feedback for me similar to that, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me a note, reach out, message me on Twitter. And if you want to support the podcast, you know how to do it. Go to iTunes. You can give it a rating. You can share it with a friend. And if you want to offer a financial contribution or gift, you can do that in the link in the podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good week. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.